You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And you're like, Chris, the Christmas story is at the beginning of the thing. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> we are in uh, week two of uh, our series in Advent. Advent, uh, the word Advent literally means just the coming. And um, we're taking a look at the, um, uh, both the coming of Christ the first time and the coming of Christ the second time, or the, the anticipated coming of Christ the second time. This week we're going to be taking a look at anticipated hope, taking a look to the past uh, of what was it that the Jews were looking for and how does that maybe relate to us. How many of you are familiar with the Battle of Waterloo? You ever heard of that one before? How about the Battle of Gettysburg? Yeah, yeah, some more familiar with that. How many of you are familiar with the Battle of Emmaus? Not so much on that one, huh? The Battle of Emmaus. It's a significant battle, um, and it's a significant battle because it leads to, it's one of the events that transpired that led to a national holiday of the Jewish people that even Jesus celebrated known as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. Uh, it was a battle that was uh, fought and led by James Maccabeus, uh, and uh, otherwise known as, and I think this is really cool, uh, he was known in, Jew- in the Jewish world as the Hammer. I mean, that's pretty Tolkien right there, you know? Uh, and he defeated in the Battle of Emmaus the Seleucid, also we would kind of know them as the Greek army that was overseeing that um, that part of the world, and ultimately that culminated in them being able to recapture uh, the temple of Jerusalem, and uh, they were able to um, have the uh, the system of worship taking place in there, and the uh, the the temple um, light, the the candlestick that was in there, uh, burned. With oil that was only should have lasted only one day, and it lasted much longer than that, uh, and became Hanukkah, the, the the celebration of light. You can imagine if you grew up in a place like Emmaus that had that kind of history, with that kind of a personality that lived there, somebody that had that kind of a reputation of being the hammer that beat the Greeks out, you know, out of uh, out of our homeland. Do you think that might have created a little? bit of maybe mythology surrounding that person. Uh, like just the, the idea of, oh yeah, I come from Emmaus. Have you heard of the hammer? Right? You know, I mean, like there's just this, this sense of like, and that's, that's what power, that's what authority, that's what all of that looks like. You can imagine being a child growing up in that kind of an environment and hearing those kind of tales and just, you know, as kids, you know, going out and, you know, they didn't play cops and robbers and stuff. One of those like, I'm going to be the hammer today. No, I'm going to be the hammer today. You're going to be the Greeks and we're going to fight each other off and this kind of mythology that would be created around this person and this idea, this one who came and liberated them from oppressors. 
Today's story, we're going to meet two of those children that grew up playing those kind of games. Um, And as we read them, oftentimes as we read the scriptures, we read them with a a lens that um, is a little bit judgmental because we look at the Jews and we look at the Hebrews and we look at Peter and we look at all of them and we go, y'all are a bunch of knuckleheads, you know? I mean, like they say things and they do things and we're just like, you have got to be kidding me. But... One, forget, don't forget the fact that they didn't have the pages sitting in front of them that we have before them. They didn't have the full story laid out for them. And here's the knucklehead part about it for us. We do have all of those things laid out before us and we yet still do not believe as we ought to. Read with me in Luke's Gospel chapter 24 starting in verse 13. We're going to go all the way to the end of it in 32. Now that same day two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus Himself came near and began to walk along with them. Now note, this is after the resurrection. This is when it says the same day. This is Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus rose again. But they were prevented from recognizing Him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you are having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened here in these days? What things? Jesus asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, the third day since these things happened, moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, How foolish you are! And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted for them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and He gave the impression that He was going to go further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening now, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was, or it was uh, as he was reclining at the table that he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while He was talking with us on the road and explaining the Scriptures to us? This is the Word of the Lord. How many of you know that Paul Revere single-handedly alerted the American militia to the coming of the British troops by riding all night and in each place crying out, 
The British are coming. Of course we know that's true. Of course that's of course we know that. How many of you know that Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity when he flew a kite in a light storm or in a lightning storm with a key attached to the end of it? Of course we know this is of course we know that's how that took place. How many of you know that the alleged witches of Salem, Massachusetts were all burned at the stake? Of course we know that. Of course we know that. Well, if you know these things, it's not because you've read them from any first-hand experience or any first uh, primary source material related to these things. But because so much of our learning comes from cultural traditions, from idioms, and from stories that are passed on to us. Paul Revere did not single-handedly write. He was a part of a very large network of informants that rode across the countryside uh, to inform the whole countryside, including all of the militia and all of the military troops that the British were, in fact, coming. And in fact, the writer who traveled the furthest of that entire group was a uh, young 16-year-old girl by the name of Sybil uh, Ludington who rode to meet her father, who was a general of a particular unit. She rode double the distance of Paul Revere. And yet, poor Sybil is not remembered in any of our cultural accolades of that. Benjamin Franklin merely wrote a letter hypothesizing that uh, lightning consisted of electricity, something that had been definitively discovered much earlier than that. And it was actually a French scientist named Thomas Francois Delabarde, very French name, that was conducting an experiment to determine that using a lightning rod. And no alleged Salem witches were burned at the stake. However, they did not fare much better in the fact that of the 20 of them, 19 were hung and one was crushed by stones. Uh, how do we get to be so familiar with something that we can get it so wrong? That's really kind of the, the question that we're at this morning. This is the question that I've often thought and asked myself concerning the, the, the Hebrews and Jews of Jesus' day and of the Old Testament. They were all awaiting the coming Messiah. That was something that all of them were waiting for. And they were waiting for it for one reason or another. And the reality is, as we read, when He came, they couldn't see Him. They, they, they didn't, when they met Him, it wasn't just this automatic light went off. This is Him. Let's follow Him. He's the one we've been waiting for. It didn't click with them. Even evil King Herod was expecting the coming Messiah. Do you remember when the Magi came to Him? And He went to His things and He says, Hey, hey, hey. The Scriptures say something about this. Where is He supposed to be born? And they were like, oh, it says that He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And He says, hey, go... You know, we know the whole story, right? Even the, the atrocious King Herod was anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Now, he thought he could do about something or do something about it. These two less known disciples of the road to Emmaus, uh, they expressed their anticipated hope. Did you catch it? When they were telling the events that had taken place and they culminated it by saying, we had hoped that He would be the one to redeem Israel. This was our hope. This was our longing. We met Him and we thought, this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've looked for. We had hoped that He would be the one, and here's the key word, to redeem 
Israel, when you think of something being redeemed, oftentimes in modern day language, we think of, use the term redeemed, like if you're uh, shopping for Christmas presents on Amazon and it gives you that little box and it says, click this box for 3% off, and you redeem the coupon. You've used it for that purpose. But this picture of uh, redemption in Scripture is that something was made for a purpose and it no longer can be used for that purpose because of its circumstances. And something dramatic must take place to restore it back to what it was made for. It's a beautiful picture. And this is what they were hoping for. And as we see them walking back to their hometown, that's the the idea of them returning back to Emmaus. They're going home. They're they're going back to the place where they were from. They they had heard of this Jesus. They had followed Him. We don't know how long. I mean, we know that the, the 12 disciples of Jesus were not the only disciples that He had. They're not the only ones that were following Him around. That as He went through the countryside and preaching, that there were others that came and followed with Him, men and women that were His disciples, that were listening, that were wanting to grow in, in their knowledge of the kingdom of God and wanting to listen. But as they saw Him and they saw Him do incredible works, they saw Him move in power, they saw Him do things that people could not physically do under their own power and they were like this is him this is the Messiah this is the one that's going to come and redeem Israel and then he says one day we're going to Jerusalem and the day that he says we're going to Jerusalem just happens to be Passover week it happens to be when he's going to go and do, uh, or the, the Jews are to be traveling into Jerusalem and they're going to be celebrating the reality that God redeemed Israel from Egypt. And they are a people who in this moment are in very much the same position that the Israelites were in that day. They are under Roman rule. They are under Roman occupation. And they're looking for an eager anticipation of Messiah to come and whoop these Romans, liberate them, restore them to their greater fortune, and lead them into this new great kingdom. This was the hope that they had and it was dashed in the death of Jesus. And we had hoped that He would be the one to redeem Israel. And then Jesus showed them from the Scriptures. As Luke says, starting with Moses, which is just Bible shorthand for saying Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. (laughs) Starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, He interpreted for them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. If there's one biblical Bible study that I wish I could have been in, that's it. Now it's not that we can't glean what it was that Jesus talked about because the Gospels are filled with that. We read passages where it says things like, this happened to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah and blah, 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 and all those kind of things. But to have Jesus Himself walking with them and saying, do you remember it says this? Do you remember it says this? Do you remember what it says this? This is what the Messiah is about. This is what the Messiah is about. This is what the Messiah is about. And here's the profound thing on this. As they walked, they still couldn't see Him. Now it does say that they were prevented. There was something about this that was supernatural involved that they just couldn't see Him. And the point of it was is that it, if they could physically see Him, 
then they would go back to their preconceived notion of what they thought He was about and it wouldn't reveal their hearts. But in the reality of this, they were verbally with this guy, this random guy. This is like an elevator conversation, right? They don't know this guy from anybody. And in fact, they're pretty annoyed with this guy. They're like, are you the only guy in town who doesn't know what's happened? Like every, everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody, I mean, he, he's fed thousands and thousands. Like everybody knows who this Jesus is. And do you guys, do, you don't know? You, you didn't, you, I mean... Obviously, you're coming back from Jerusalem too. You weren't there. You didn't hear the crucify Him, send us Barabbas. You didn't, I mean, you didn't see any of that. What were you doing? They were annoying. There's so much fullness of this. I love it, the fact that it, it describes, it says, that when Jesus says, what are you discussing? It says they stopped and were sad. Like you can just imagine them walking and talking and when he asked them they just stop and their shoulders shrunk and they're just like oh, you know What did the scriptures teach about the coming Messiah? Remember we said we we don't want to just think we know. We want to go back to the original source. We want to go back to what the scriptures say. Well, in fact, the Scriptures say a lot about the coming Messiah. You can follow along with some of these things or you can uh, jot them down and just double-check that I'm not you know, being a heretic and throwing out some random things for you. The first thing was that the Messiah would come from original humanity and would crush evil. That the Messiah would come from original humanity and would crush evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, when God is condemning the serpent for deceiving the woman, He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike His heel. To have a crushed heel or a crushed head, which one do you think is worse? Crushed head is much worse. That this Messiah would come from woman, from this woman, original humanity, and would crush the head of the serpent, would destroy the whole uh, picture of evil as it lays out there. This was something that was known amongst the Jews that the Messiah would come and accomplish. He would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Uh, and in multiple places throughout the book of Genesis, this is promised and foretold numerous times to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And which is such a crazy thing. Jacob was the deceiver, the liar, the trickster, uh, the one that was there. And yet God's promise was through him would come the promised one, the promised Messiah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the Scriptures tell us that He would specifically come through the Israelite tribe of Judah. Not one of the others, but specifically Judah. It says in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, "...the scepter will not depart from Judah, or the staff from between his feet, until he whose right it, uh, it comes, and the obedience of the people belongs to him." And this is profound because it's talking in kingly terms long before there was a Jewish king sitting upon any throne anywhere that there was. There was no Jerusalem. There was no temple. There was no kingship in Israel. And and yet, the promise was that there would be one who would come, who would wield the scepter of a king forever from the tribe of Judah. 
Uh, in first in Second Samuel chapter seven verse eleven, it tells us that he would be the descendant of King David. To King David, he says, "The Lord declares to you, the Lord Himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I." Will will establish the throne as His kingdom forever. I will be His Father. He will be My Son. When He does uh, in all of this, uh, I will accomplish My purposes. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the Scriptures say that he would something miraculous would take place in this, that He would be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, And the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. In Micah chapter 5 verse 12 or verse 2, it says specifically that he would be born of Bethlehem, Judea. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small amongst the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Jeremiah would call him a king. Daniel would say that his kingdom would have no end. Hosea would say that the Messiah would restore Israel like the escape from Egypt. Joel would say that the Spirit of God rests upon him. And Zechariah would say that he would be the shepherd of the people. Can we just say that the Scriptures were not silent about the coming Messiah? Everything that was read, every prophet that wrote, every uh, promise towards Israel was laced with this redeeming hope that God would accomplish something dramatic in His people through this one. And yet the Scriptures also said some other things that seemed to be wrestling with each other. He said in Isaiah chapter 53, describing this servant of God, one that was looked very much to be like the Messiah, that He would be one that would come and suffer and would die on behalf of His people. In Isaiah chapter 63, it, uh, Isaiah describes for us that His garments, the Messiah's garments, would be red with the blood of His enemies. And in all this description of David, David was a warrior king. He was not a peace king. He was a warrior king. So much so that when he went to build the temple, God said no. Why? Because there's too much blood on your hands. And yet the Messiah would be one that would come and would do these things. This is what the Scriptures say. This is what they actually describe of the Messiah coming. So what, when the Jews read these things, what did they expect of the coming Messiah? What was it that they were looking for as they heard these things, read these exact same passages of Scripture, listened to what they had to say, interpreted them and said, who is it that we're looking for in our experience and in our life and the Scriptures? How is it to be there? Four things that come from these Scriptures that He would certainly be a king. Second, that He would be a king with power. 
Third, that with that power he would overthrow evil. And fourth, he would overthrow evil to reestablish national sovereignty. A king with power to overthrow evil and reestablish national sovereignty. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. When Jesus stepped on the stage and people began to use the term Messiah describing Him, very often Jesus told them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. In fact, it's an interesting thing as you read through the Gospels, there's something that's known as the Messianic secret. Jesus would perform an incredible miracle. He would do something dramatic. And people's the light would go on and they'd be like, people can't do this normally. This guy must be the Messiah. And Jesus would tell them something specific. He would say what? Go and tell no one. Right? Go and tell no one. And we're like, what? What do you mean? Go tell everybody. This is incredible. The Messiah's come. What do you mean? Don't go tell anyone. And for the first major part of Jesus' ministry, that's what He did. He went and preached the kingdom of God. He taught the Scriptures. He healed the sick. He, he did all of these things and He would tell people, don't, don't tell them who I am. Don't tell them who I am. <clears throat> and as it built up in them, you can't really blame these disciples. These two guys, lesser known disciples, as they're seeing all of this, the idea of redemption itself was a Passover idea. It's a, it's a Jewish term and, and theological idea. When we talk about things like justification or sanctification, redemption was a Jew, one of those kind of Jewish ideas. And it originated from Passover, from the actual Passover event. When God came to Moses at that burning bush event and He he said, uh, go and you'll do all of these things because the people, I've heard their cries out for me and I will redeem them. And then God does miracles, right? Brings all these plagues and and, uh, does everything there and He culminates it in this reality moment of that Passover event. Kill the lamb, put its blood over the doorpost and keep the Jews inside. And those that don't have it, the death angel will come and their firstborn will die. But those that have the blood over their doorpost, the death angel will come and He will pass over them and they will be redeemed. And they will be My people. I will be their God. And they will be liberated from their slavery. They'll be saved from it. Jesus came into Jerusalem the week of Passover. And not only did He come into Jerusalem the week of Passover, He came into Jerusalem the week of Passover as a king. And He came as a king riding in peace. The the whole image of Jesus riding on a young colt on this, on this little donkey, and then p- putting the palm branches on the ground and crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! And all, that was all the image of a king returning to Jerusalem. Not a king from a battle, but a king in peacetime. He did not ride upon a war horse, but on a lowly colt. And the, and the, the religious leaders, they confronted Him and they tell Him to stop. And Jesus said, I... If I tell them to stop, the stones of the ground will rise up and cry out for them. 
This was the picture of a king coming in. And His disciples knew this. They knew this is what this, this meant. And Jesus is coming into with all of the Jews there. And you can imagine in their minds, they're thinking like, you know, man, I've heard of the hammer, but have you heard of Jesus? Like the hammer couldn't bring people back to life. Like can you imagine what a warrior would be like that could literally walk around and bring his dead soldiers back to life? I mean, just think of all of the things that could have been going through minds as they're thinking about this. The, what this? He, I mean, he's coming in, and surely he's going to go to the armory, and he's going to, you know, gird up all of, you know, just say, to arms us. We're going to overthrow these Romans. We're going to, we're going to accomplish this. We're going to do this, and it's going to be like Passover. And God is going to come with the death angel, and he's going to liberate, redeem us. And then He did with His disciples a miraculous thing. He ate Passover. And He said to them, this is the cup of the new covenant which is My blood poured out for you. What? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. We can, we can feel the tension in this and the fact that Peter was already armed as he went up into the Garden of Gethsemane. And his first reaction when they came to get him was to what? To arms. Why? Because that's what the Messiah was. He was a warrior king that came to destroy evil. Do you think the Romans are evil? Of course they're evil. Did God make forever promises to Israel? Of course He did. This is the king. We saw Him come in as a king. Everything about this. This is who He is. And then He died. What did He go around doing that for? Messiahs don't die. Warrior kings coming to liberate and redeem Israel, they don't die. That's not how this works. Here's the thing though. When they were anticipating a king with power to overthrow evil and reestablish national sovereignty, he came and accomplished all the things anticipated that the Messiah was going to do. Just not in the way that they thought he was going to do it. He was king. He was king. And we see that from the very, very beginning. What were the first gifts that Jesus received on this earth? Besides from some swaddling clothes. <laughs> well, it's at least recorded for us, probably when he was a little bit older. Magi, magicians from Babylon, traveled and brought the king the gifts for a king. And they laid him at his feet, gold and frankincense and myrrh, acknowledging his kingship. It was the king's star that they were pursuing. They knew it was coming. He was the king. And yet, not like any king they had, anybody had ever seen before. There were no king that was born in Bethlehem except for a guy by the name of David. He came with power. But rather than that power being to overthrow the Romans with an army, He came with the power to cast out demons, to make the lame walk, to make blind people see. He called the dead back to life. Power such as the world had never seen before. Third, He overcame evil. 
but not with the sword of His wrath, but the forgiveness of tax collectors and prostitutes. He overcame evil with truth. He was a friend of the outcast. And He crushed the head of the serpent after the most evil thing that could be done to Him was done. His own creation killing Him. And we saw Him overcome evil in the death of death through the death of Christ. He took what was broken and He made it right. And He showed that He had power to do that and accomplish it in Himself. And He established His kingdom upon the world such that though uh, through the ages nations have sought to blot it out and, uh, and the blood of its citizens has been spilt as martyrs across the globe. And yet, it doesn't end. He accomplished everything that they were thinking He was going to. They did, he just didn't do it in the way that they thought He should. Now we may be tempted, knowing all that we know, to look at those two disciples and say how foolish they were not to see Christ. Seems crazy. But the question I want us to conclude with this morning is, could we miss the Messiah too? Could we miss the Messiah too? If He walked in the door through here, And He didn't look like what we thought He was going to look like. He didn't act like we thought He was going to look like. He didn't have the priorities that we thought He should have. Would we miss Him too? Would we be like those two disciples, those two young men, walking back to their hometown with visions of the hammer in their head? Right? And they couldn't help but take that image and overlay it over Jesus and go like, well, maybe He's going to be like that. Maybe He's going to change. Maybe He's going to figure it out. How can we miss the Messiah? Well, we will certainly miss the Messiah when we treat Jesus like an impersonal king instead of a royal brother. For many people, Jesus is... The institutor for many Christians anyways, professing Christians, Jesus is the one that institutes the rules that we are to follow as Christians. He is the, the, the one that executes the laws. Why should we love? Well, because Jesus declared it. Why should we forgive? Well, because Jesus declared it. The same way that you would look at a king and say, well, why do we follow these laws? Because the king declared it. Do you know the King? Do you spend time with the King? Do you love the King? For many people, Jesus is more of an ideal to follow rather than a person to know and cherish. To love Him. To adore Him. To see Him not as impersonal, but as more deeply personal than any other person that we've ever met. To see what He says, to receive the Holy Spirit, to walk in the truth of that, to daily live in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. Many people that profess to be Christians just think of Jesus as their King and not as their brother. And if that's the case, we'll miss Him. We'll miss Him. Secondly, we can miss the Messiah when we try to use Jesus' power for influence and authority rather than to love like He did. 
many Christians live their life in this present world, specifically in Western world, but it, it is true in, in other parts of the world as well. The power and influence, that's the greatest thing that we can achieve. If we have power, if we have influence, then we can change things. We can accomplish things. That's why we need our leaders. We need our ruling system. We need, our, we need those things so that we can accomplish what God intends for us to accomplish. Friends, if, if Jesus could take polytheistic Romans who couldn't give a hoot about these Jews in, in Bethlehem, Palestine, Jerusalem, and any of that region... And Jesus could take them who did not know Him and love Him and use them expressly to accomplish surgically every aspect of His purposes down to the nature of the fact that His bones would not be broken on the cross. His garments would not be ripped apart and that they would be distributed by the casting of lots. That He would be crucified between, uh, between uh, criminals And all of that was culminated and done by people that had no concept of the Old Testament and any of the prophecies that described every one of those aspects to be true. Do you think God needs us to have leaders in place that have power and influence for Him to still accomplish His purposes? We certainly act like God can't do what He needs to do if we don't Submit to people that we hope have power. We turn a blind eye to sinful behaviors simply so that we can have the influence that we think we need to have. If we try to use Jesus and His power for influence and authority, we'll miss the Messiah. Thirdly, we can miss the Messiah if we think Jesus' war against evil is for the other instead of me. We can miss the Messiah if we think Jesus' war against evil is for the other instead of me. The Apostle Paul wrote, For we do not war against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and authorities in high places. Here's what that means. You have never once in your life met the enemy. Chris, I've met some bad people. I know. But we waged war not against flesh and blood. We've never met. We've only ever met an image bearer of God who rebelled against God the same as us. We're not at war with them. When Jesus wages war against evil, He does it against sin. And the Christian heart is one that always has a surgical awareness to the reality of our own brokenness, our own need for Jesus. It's why Jesus is so dear to us. And if we get so caught up in waging a Jesus war against evil out there that we forget that there is such deep darkness in us that desperately needs Jesus... We won't look like Jesus. And we'll be trying to command Jesus to go to the armory and destroy the evil out there. 
when it was the Jews, not the Romans, who were the ones yelling, crucify Him. And we will miss the Messiah too when we try to use Jesus to build our kingdom instead of allowing Him to use us for His kingdom. His kingdom has come. It is here. We live in what we call the now and the not yet. And it's a, it's, it's a pretty crazy place to live. We live in a moment where we have been forgiven. Like we will be forgiven in heaven forever, we live right now. Dear friend, your Christian life is not waiting for eternal life later. It's about now. Do you, do you know how Jesus taught on the subject of eternal life? He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, God, and Jesus whom you have sent. And yet so often we try to use Jesus to build a kingdom now. A safety net, a, a barrier now that we can live comfortably. As though the kingdom of God is not already eternal. And if we think we're trying to build a kingdom now, rather than being used by God in His kingdom for all eternity, we'll miss the Messiah. Yes, friends, it actually is very easy to miss the Messiah. Those that walked with Him and saw Him do the acts, they they didn't get it. It wasn't until finally He revealed this profound truth and he, He told them when He left... Promising His second coming, He said this. He said, You will be My my witnesses. That word witness is an interesting thing. Uh, The transliteration of it, does anybody know what the transliteration of the, the witness is? The one who witnesses is? The martyr. The martyr. You will be My martyrs in this world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. You will declare what you have seen. You will declare what is true. You will tell them. Paul Revere didn't ride by himself. There was a teenage girl that rode with him. Uh, All of these truths that we know, we're going to go back to the source that yes, he is a king, and this is how he was the king. Yes, he came with power, and this is how he came with power. Yes, he uh, comes to destroy evil, and let me show you the evil that he has destroyed in me, and let me show you his kingdom and live in light of that kingdom. We live in light of an anticipated hope. And a hope not in a Jesus that isn't coming. Like these disciples, their Messiah wasn't coming. Because their desire, their Messiah wasn't real. But there was a Messiah who had come and was walking with them And we live with that same Messiah walking with us now. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, He walks with us and empowers us to be sons and daughters of God, adopted into His family. And next week we're going to take a look at the the final culmination of that. The second advent. The one that we live in light of now. Here's the hope that we live in. If Jesus tarries and we die, 
or Jesus doesn't tarry and He comes back, we don't live in some spiritual vortex of heaven floating around on clouds with little halos and playing harps forever. That's nowhere in the Bible. When we spend eternity, we don't spend eternity in heaven separated from all things and there's you know just kind of this amorphous thing. The promise of Jesus at His second coming is that the divide between heaven and earth goes away. It becomes one thing. God's space and man's space becomes one thing. He makes all things new. And this is the promise that He has for us. And we can know that because He is the King that came with power to destroy evil and establish His kingdom for an ever and ever in which we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so incredibly thankful for this truth of Advent. God, forgive us when we live like these disciples did, caricaturizing You to something You are not, Jesus. Placing upon You our cultural norms and expectations, idioms and stories that we have handed down that are not of Your Word and not of Your character. Help us to live in light of the Gospel truth that You have redeemed us from death to life. You paid the penalty for our sins. have forgiven us completely. Adopted us into Your kingdom. And empowered us to live as sons and daughters of this kingdom. And so Heavenly Father, we pray that You would uh, this week help us to live in anticipated hope as we share the gospel with our friends and family members and our co-workers as we live in light of the gospel as we uh, our husbands and wives and uh, co-workers and friends as, uh, as the gospel changes everything about everything that we do we pray that we would love you this way we pray all of this in the sweet and precious name of Jesus Amen Thank you for joining us we hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.